Genesis 22, I'm going to speak to you tonight and teach a lesson on the wood of Genesis 22. There will be a lot of other things that we touch on in this chapter. As we're doing that, uh, how many are glad you're here? Yes. Yes. How many are glad you're saved? I want to give a thousand dollars to the building fund. Oh, that's five thousand. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I got all of it. No. Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, so here we go. Let's uh, let's turn to Genesis 22. You know, last week we saw some interesting things as we uh, dealt with uh, the passage there in Genesis chapter two, the fall of Adam. Why did Adam take the fruit? And uh, a lot of you here, most of you were here, have told me you got a lot out of that. I'm glad. And I pray that God will use that to encourage you. Tonight, we're going to see another passage that is loaded with beautiful typology. You're going to see Christ prefigured here at His death, burial, and resurrection. But as we look at this chapter, we see that typology is all over the place. You see Christ. You see His substitutionary atonement. Uh, is he went to Mount Moriah uh, nearly 2,000 years ago to give his life upon the cross. We also have in typology the resurrection of Christ in this chapter as he came out, out of the grave after three days and nights. But I'd like you to notice in particular the wood, Abraham's wood for Isaac's altar. What's the wood a picture of? What's the wood a type of? A type, as we shared with you last week and we passed out a definition for you, a type is a divinely appointed illustration of some scriptural truth. And we passed out a little a piece for you last week showing how that Adam, first man Adam, was a type or a picture of second man Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. So the wood, what's it a symbol of? What's it a picture of? I hope that uh, uh, this evening as we go over this lesson, I hope you'll get a real blessing out of it and you'll see uh, the typology in a, in, a, in a brand new way. You know, our central theme as a teacher uh, is the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I don't believe that the teaching a pulpit or the preaching pulpit is a place to uh, preach social reform or to entertain people. Uh, it's not a sounding board for science or philosophy. I believe the pulpit's a place where the whole counsel of God is to be preached. Yeah. And you know, in being faithful to the command to teach the gospel and preach the gospel, I think that a teacher... And a preacher should not only speak from John 3.16, where we know the gospel is, and it's there in clarity, and certainly uh, we should not only teach and preach from Romans 10.9 and 10, where the plan of salvation is made very apparent, but we should also teach the Old Testament types, the Old Testament uh, shadows, where you have the scarlet cord of redemption interwoven throughout the entire Old Testament. So today, as we approach Genesis chapter 22, we're going to be looking at Calvary and the resurrection. You know, the wonderful thing about the gospel is that it's uh, in every single book of the Bible. You see, in the Old Testament, the gospel is seen through types and shadows, like we're going to talk about tonight. Where in the New Testament, it's there in black and white, where it's easy to understand. But as you begin to see the types in the Old Testament, what that'll do for you as a believer is strengthen your faith in the Word of God. It'll give you a greater hunger for the Word of God because you'll realize that everything that happened aforetime, as the Scripture says, happened for our learning and admonition. Man could not have written the Bible. No way. With all of its untold wealth, only a holy God could write what we're going to see tonight. There's no contradiction in the Word of God. There's no contradiction 
in God's message. So as we examine Genesis 22, let's note in particular the wood, which is mentioned five times in this text. I hope uh, you'll get an understanding of this, and by doing that, this will take on an entirely new meaning for you. Notice in verse number 1 of Genesis 22, And it came to pass after these things. Now that these things speak of the birth of Isaac in chapter number 21, the birth of Isaac, a child born miraculously. As a matter of fact, Isaac's birth is a type or a picture of the new birth. Why? When Isaac was born, it brought joy and it brought laughter. As a matter of fact, the name Isaac in Hebrew means laughter. And nothing brought more joy to the tents of Abraham than his son Isaac. Uh, The same is true when a man gets born again. You remember when you got saved and what joy it brought uh, to your to your family, particularly if they were saved. Now, I know some of us come from homes where maybe the parents weren't saved. But when a man's born again, nothing so delights the mom or the dad or the, or the other siblings as salvation. But then again, if you look at this, you'll see that Isaac was also a, a type of the new birth in that he was born miraculously. From a human standpoint, there could have never been an Isaac. That's right. Abraham was 100 when Isaac was born. Sarah was 90 years old. They were both beyond the years of human conception. So Isaac was born miraculously. And so it is with the new birth. The new birth is a miracle of God. But then also notice when Isaac was born, there was a conflict in the tents of Abraham. Ishmael was already there. Okay, And when Isaac was born, we see a type or a picture of the old nature versus the new nature. You have, you have Ishmael, a type of the old nature, Isaac, a type of the new nature. And of course, Ishmael and Isaac are pictured together, which points out the fact that when you're born of the Holy Spirit, the old nature and the new nature are going to be present in your life, and they war one against the other. That's what Galatians chapter 5, verse 17 says, For the flesh lusteth against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh, and these are contrary the one to the other, so that ye cannot do the things that ye would. There's a constant battle going on. And then, then we notice also in Romans 7, verse 23, Paul said, But I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which are in my members. You see, those two natures are in a constant battle. And the one you feed the most is the one that's going to get that's the victory. Right. So when Isaac was born, in many ways his birth was a type of a born-again experience which you and I enjoy in the grace of God. Now, I've got a little insert I'm going to pass out to you, and it kind of gives you a picture of the two natures. You know, you have an old nature and a new nature, and then I'm going to take a little bit of time here to share with you exactly what happens when you get saved. Some of this I've actually covered. We can pass those along here and pass those along over there. And uh, when you look... And what actually happens when you get saved, and I'm, I'm kind of sidestepping from my, from my lesson just for a moment, because I want you to understand that when you got saved, the Scripture refers to that as the operation of God. I shared that with our class in the fall. We talked about this briefly. But this is important because I'm, I'm amazed at how many people really don't truly understand that. But I want you to get a good grasp of what God did for you the moment you got saved and why you're now no longer under condemnation. The condemnation that was hanging over you is gone. 
The Bible says, Therefore there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So uh, the condemnation is past. But let's look. Turn in your Bibles, if you would. And I'm afraid this Bible is going to fall apart, so I better, I'm going to grab my, uh, my other Bible here on my cell phone. And turn, if you would, to Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Colossians chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. Come on in, sir. Uh, let's can I, see you. Can I let you just sit down? Yeah, you can actually, if you want to sit here, we're... I mean, I'm, oh, brother, I've never been a head-of-the-class kind of guy. <laughs> well, there's one more chair back there in the back. If you want to, right over here. Okay, good. Okay, thank you, Thank you. And you are? That's David. David, nice to meet you. I'm Mark. That was a My good wife, response, Joey, and though. I like we'll, that. <laughs> we will get your uh, contact information after class. It's good yeah, to have you. Okay. Okay. <clears throat> Colossians what now? Uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 2. Uh-huh. And I'd like to go to verse number 10. Colossians chapter 2 and verse number 10. The scripture says, And ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power, in whom ye are also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in the putting off of the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein you're also risen with him through the faith of the operation of God. Now notice the Bible talks about your salvation experience as being the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. So here, here's the thing. All of us in this room before we got saved were sin sick, right? The Bible said... Uh, we need to be circumcised in our heart. You know, we need to... And the Bible says in Hebrews 4.12 that the Word of God is what? A sharp, two-edged sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and to the joints and marrow and is the discerner of the intents and thoughts of the heart. So you're on the spiritual surgery table because you're unsaved, okay? Now, I'm not saying you're unsaved. I know you're saved, okay? But... Before you got saved, you were on God's spiritual surgery table. And the problem was, your body, soul, and spirit were stuck together because you've never been saved. That's why the Bible says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Where's that at again? 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned. And if you don't have the Holy Spirit inside of you, you can't discern. I don't care if you have a PhD or, or what you have. You you know, my son is working on his third master's degree. But he doesn't understand the Bible because, because he has those master's degrees. He understands the Bible because he got born again when he was a child. And he loves God. Okay? So you're on that spiritual operating table. And, and the Bible says that, that an operation took place. We just read about it. It says right here, and you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. In other words, this is not a physical circumcision. It's a spiritual circumcision. And that's why the, the Jews were told in Romans 2.29, you don't need the circumcision of the flesh. You need a circumcision of your heart. That's right. You need a circumcision of the heart. So what happened? God said there was an operation that needed to take place. And so what did he do? The Bible says that it's sharp two-edged sword, which is like God's scalpel knife, the Word of God. When surgery takes place, I had open-heart surgery 12 years ago, bypass surgery. 
died on the operating table. They had my death, the uh, time of death, already on the card. Eight minutes later, I was prayed back to life, and here I am. Okay? See, I, I, God, when I went in for surgery, God gave me a verse in Psalm 91. He promised me long life, so I had perfect peace. But, you know, you're looking at a person that was declared dead. The whole hospital freaked out. This was in Lakeland, Florida. Okay? And so, but, but that's a physical operation. We're talking about a spiritual operation. So when you're on that operating table, you need to be saved. God said, I have just the thing for you. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word. And the Word of God is what? You receive the Word of God and you receive Christ as your Savior. But when that happened, God had to cut your body, soul, and spirit loose. Why? Because you only had an old nature. And your old nature was warring against the flesh. So what did God do? He infused a new nature in you the moment you got saved. Okay, it's called the operation of God. That was a divine operation. And that's what we talked about last week. 1 John chapter... Uh, 1 John chapter, was it 3? Verse 7? Yeah, let me go to that real quick. What was it? 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. I'm sorry. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. Turn in your Bibles if you haven't already. 1 John chapter 3. I'm slipping here. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9. For whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. Uh-oh, I sinned today. I must not be saved. No, that's not what it says. Whosoever is born of God doth not commit sin. For his seed remaineth in him. And he, the seed cannot sin. Why? Because the seed is born of God. Do you see that? Okay. The seed is born of God. 1 Peter 1.23 Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. So what happened was this. You're on the operating table. God takes his spiritual surgery, uh, a knife, which is the word of God, the sharp two-edged sword. It pierces to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit, now your body, soul, and spirit are cut loose. And when that happened, God infused divine life in you, the seed which cannot sin. And that just so happens the Greek word for seed in 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 is the same identical Greek word found in the Gospel of Luke when it referred to the virgin birth and Jesus Christ where it said, holy thing. It's the same Greek word. So what am I saying? I'm saying that holy thing that was placed in the womb of the virgin Mary, that produced Jesus Christ, is on the inside of you. That holy thing. That seed that does not sin. It can't sin because it's born of God. Now, there's no extra charge for that. Okay? <laughs> and we, just deviated, <coughs> we just deviated from the, the lesson a little bit. Mark, Molly had a question. Molly? I don't sorry. Have a question. I just oh, have a statement. Go ahead. And I hope I don't cry. Um, last week, there was a young man here who, I'm assuming, was recently saved. Yes. And he came from the sanctuary and he said, yeah, and I thought of him all week because he was so alive with things of the Lord. He was just hungry. Feed me. Feed me. Tell me more. Tell me more. I can't get enough of this wonderful stuff. I have thought of that young man all week. We need we need to definitely pray for him. You know, we have uh, uh, the young couple that was in here too that's just recently been saved. Yeah, Joe and yeah, they're uh, they by the way, they soaked up last week. I, you know, 
uh, periodically people have to miss a class. I hope they'll be back because I believe they'll get a lot out of the class. But uh, anyway, before the, the class is over, let's let's remember to pray for them. Okay. okay. Uh, thanks, Molly, for bringing them. Yeah. Um, so it's our, our flesh is what sins, not the seed of the flesh. It, yeah, that's why Paul said, "I find, you know, the, the, the when I want to do good, evil is present with me. The things that I should do, I don't. The things I shouldn't do, I do. There's that constant warfare. Now, if you look at the, yes, sir. I'm gonna be caught for a minute, but I'll get some time. Oh, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I didn't want to start going fast. No, that's okay. I, I By the way, has the. Uh, <laughs> yes, I took it down to seven. Make sure it stays there. Uh, yeah, I told her I'm going to make sure it's definitely 70 or lower because it's uh, with this many people in the room, you know, it's. Uh, it, you want me to go check? Yeah. Uh, if you want to put it down to 40, that's fine. I'm not going to get this little chart that I passed out, and again, i got to get back on track here. We'll never get through tonight. But but uh, this little chart I passed out was uh, a chart put out by Clarence Larkin years ago, back around uh, the turn of the, uh, well, probably around, written around 1910, 1920. But uh, anyway, the it shows the regenerated man in the middle, which is the born-again man, but on... On each side of that born again man, or as a nature, you have the old nature on one side, and you have the new nature on the on the other side—the spiritual man and the natural man. So that that warfare is constant. Uh, some of the verses on there are kind of hard to read. I did the best I could with the reproduction on this, but if you have any questions on any of the verses that you can't read, I've got them written down up here, and I can give them to you after the class. But that's exactly what happened when you got saved. Just like we saw depicted with Ishmael and Isaac, Ishmael picturing the old nature, Isaac pic, pic, depicting the new nature, they're in constant war one with another. So you're going to have to deal with that. But God uh, tells us very plainly, it said there's no temptation taking you, but such is common to man. But God with the temptation will give you a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. So when that old nature flares up, God's given you His Word to quote, when you start quoting the word, the devil flees. Cannot okay, stay. yes, Cannot he can't. Stay. He can't take the word. He can take. He can take a lot of other things, but he can't take no, the word. No. So let's go back to Genesis 22, verse one. It says uh, that, and it came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham. Now, let let me clarify that God did not tempt Abraham to sin. God tempts no man to sin. However, God allows Abraham to be tested here in the form of a great test and a great trial. And may I say to you, God allows testing to come to everybody in this room as we walk with the Lord. There's going to be trials, there's going to be tests. God doesn't have to test me uh, for Him to know who I am and what I'll do. But sometimes God allows testings in order that we might know what we'll do and what we are in the grace of God. So that's exactly what happened here. Certainly that was the case also with Job. Don't you know that God knew what Job was? And uh, that Job would uh, do, uh, he knew exactly what Job would do when he was tested. God knows everything. The Bible said, says in 1 Samuel 3, uh, 2, 3, or 3, 2, our God is a God of knowledge and by him actions are weighed. Then it says in the Psalms, his understanding is infinite. That means without limitations or bounds. So has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurred to God? 
He's forever known everything. Okay? <laughs> okay? So, if uh, I, I doubt really if Job really knew what he was. I, I doubt if his wife knew. Certainly his three friends that indicted him didn't know what Job was. But we learn from the life of Job that tests come so others may know what you are in the grace of God. And if you're genuine, when the testing comes, you'll not abandon the ship. You'll not throw in the towel. You'll not capitulate. If you have real faith, you'll endure every testing that God gives you. You may stumble, you may fall, but you'll get back up and move forward by the grace of God. So in Genesis 22, it says, It came to pass after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. And he said, Take now thy son, thy only son Isaac, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah, and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains which I will tell thee of. Now in reading these verses, we need to recognize that this period of time is 800 years before Jerusalem is actually founded by David. Now, David founded the city of Jerusalem at approximately 1000 B.C. And of course, there is no Jerusalem when Abraham lived in the plains of Mamre, which is approximately 20 miles south of what, uh, where the city of Jerusalem was eventually erected. So God said to Abraham, get your son, your only son, take him to Moriah and offer him as a sacrifice unto God. Now you can rest assured that no test any man has ever faced is more severe than that one. Uh, you say, well, Brother Mark, why would God do such a thing like that? Why would he require something that harsh and that over the top? Well, by finishing the story, I think you'll understand and get a better answer to that question. First of all, may I say that Abraham was a very wealthy man. Uh, he possessed many material things. We're told that he had 300 servants. They actually served as an army. They went to battle for Abraham. We're told he was wealthy in cattle and sheep and camels and other possessions. He was a very wealthy man. But in all the things that Abraham had, nothing was closer to his heart than his son born miraculously, Isaac. And the very thing that Abraham loved more than life itself, God has put his finger on that one thing. He said, now carry your son to the land of Moriah and make him there as a burnt offering. I think it's interesting, Abraham did not question uh, God's command. He didn't say, well now wait a minute, Lord, I think that's a little uh, uh, too much. I think you're taking things too far. No, he didn't say that. He didn't say that at all. So look at verse 3 with me. It says, Abraham rose up early in the morning and he saddled his ass and he took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for the burnt offering and rose up and went to the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, <clears throat> Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. So here in verse 3, we note the wood for the very first time. And it took three days for Abraham to prepare to make the journey and to get his servants ready and to saddle his donkey. This donkey here, I might add, in verse number three uh, is, was not for Abraham to ride on, but note the donkey was used to put the wood on. So Abraham loaded up his donkey, put all the cargo on there, said goodbye to his wife, took his son, and began to make his way from the plains of Mamre into the land of Moriah. Uh, Abraham... If you study, you'll find he didn't know exactly where the altar was going to be. God had not showed him that yet. Uh, so he sets out from his house and goes almost due north to what is known as the land of Moriah. 
And when he got to Moriah, God pointed out the hilltop that that altar was to be erected. God said, I look, I want you to go to that hilltop. I want you to erect an altar and offer thy son Isaac unto God. And may I say that it just so happens, and this is something you want to take note of, it just so happens that the mountain on which Isaac was to be offered 1,875 years before Jesus Christ was born is this very same mountain we call Mount Calvary, where the three crosses stood. And my dear friend, the word Moriah, if you study it in Hebrew, the word Moriah means the Lord will provide. And it was on Mount Moriah where the sacrifice was to be altered. The very hilltops uh, the city of Jerusalem is located upon are the mountains of Moriah. Uh, and uh, Abraham carried his son there to offer him as a sacrifice. And ladies and gentlemen, when you stop and think about it, that the very mount that he was told to go to is the same one that our Savior was crucified on. My friend, that in itself is a miracle of God. Yes. Proof of divine inspiration. How would Abraham know where Jerusalem was going to be founded? How did Abraham know to carry his son to the very mountain called that we call Mount Calvary? Mount Moriah, meaning the Lord will provide in Hebrew. Wow. Now there's several other hilltops he could have gone to. The Mount of Olives was only a half a mile from there. Uh, there were other mountaintops such as Mount Zion where uh, David's palace was built, which is only maybe a mile uh, from that particular place. Yes, there's several mountaintops that Jerusalem is built upon, but God pointed out that one particular mountaintop, and that one particular mountaintop was where three crosses were erected 2,000 years ago, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was crucified on the middle cross. The very fact that Abraham went right to that mountain is an indication of the inspiration and preservation of the Word of God. And so now with everything in order, Abraham says goodbye to his wife. He takes his two servants and his son along with the donkey loaded down with that wood. And I can imagine that little donkey as it traveled you know, up into those mountains, you know, a little beast of burden, uh, wood on both sides of the donkey draped over as that little donkey would, uh, steps were, I'm sure, uh, un, you know, unsteady at times over those jagged rocks and going up that mountain. And what a, a, a vision that is. But now once Abraham has arrived at Moriah, God points to the hilltop that he was supposed to go to. Note the following would be in verses 4 and 5. It says, Then on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said to his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. Wait, that's three days. Whoa. Yeah, yeah, we're sorry. You're, you're no, you're a step ahead. No, that's good. I like it. You're a step ahead of me. That's I, just, good. I, I just saw that. I'm like, oh, wait. Yeah, nobody good. likes a smart like you. No, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, no. I, just no never, I never saw that yeah. before until just now. Well, the light, then, you're going to see wow. several more lights come on here as we keep going. But that's a great observation on your part. I'd like you to note here the faith of Abraham in this particular point. Look at what happened here. He said, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Isaac and Abraham leave the two servants at the foot of the mountaintop, which is important. You'll see why in a minute. They leave the unloaded donkey at the foot of the mountains and the load of that animal that was on that animal that he bore all that way uh, from the plains of Mamre is now placed upon the shoulders of Isaac. And 
The lad Isaac carries the wood from the foot of the mountain top to the top of the mountain. Of course, earlier God said, go to the mountain and give your son as an offering. God said nothing about worshiping. He didn't say anything about that. Yet we note the faith of Abraham is so great, he said, I plan to worship on that mountaintop. I plan to have a shouting time. Amen? And so the more and more than that, notice that Abraham said, and I and the lad will come again to you. You say, well, now, wait a minute, Brother Mark. How do you expect, uh, how does Abraham expect to come back with the lad when he's been told to make him a burnt offering unto God? Mm. Ladies and gentlemen, Abraham believed that even though he made his son a burnt offering, God would resurrect him from the dead. That's right. And he in faith declared, I and the lad will come again. Mm -hmm. So Abraham believed in the resurrection. And of course, having read Genesis 22, we know that Isaac was not slain. However, had Isaac been slain in the providence of God, and had Abraham gone through with the burnt offering, yet God would have resurrected Isaac just as sure as you sit in this room tonight. And in one sense of the word, he was resurrected. Yes, sir. Uh, Am I mistaken or not? Back then, uh, well, Abraham being Jewish, I mean... Offering up your child was an abomination, wasn't it? It would have been. In fact, he was the first Jew. Yeah, in other words, offering up your child as a burnt offering or burning, you know, as a sacrifice was considered an abomination. Yeah, well, you know, of course, keep in mind, he, he, Abraham was not, he was living before the dispensation of the law. Now, when the law came, there were all kinds of, mm-hmm. uh, you know, do's and don'ts and things like that. But... Yes, you're right. It is an abomination to God, and he was the first Jew. Right, considering... Yeah, it, I mean, when you think about that... That's, yeah, that's pretty heavy. Faith was. Exactly. You're a very well-taken point. Thank you uh, for sharing that. That's Mark, right. Mark, yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. I'm sorry. Yes, oh. um, Isaac cutting the wood is like a Jesus cutting the cross... That's exactly where we're going. Now, there's another one that's ahead of me. Now, what? Is, now maybe you know something. I, I think I'm going to come up with another lesson here. You're good. <laughs> no, you're doing great. Yes, ma'am. What impressed me is Isaac trusted his father Abraham. Exactly. He didn't. He didn't question him, did he? Very good point. Very good point. So, as you look at this, uh, and all these are great comments. I appreciate the feet, uh, the input. Um, if you stop and think about it, in one sense of the word, Isaac was resurrected in that a substitute was provided in his place. So no doubt in the mind of God, Isaac was slain, buried, and resurrected in the mind of God. And just as the Holy Spirit began to seek out a bride after Jesus' resurrection, that we are part of the bride, the bride of Christ. And just as that happened when Jesus was resurrected, we note in Genesis 24 Abraham's servant, who is a type or a picture of the Holy Spirit, goes out to seek a bride for Isaac, who's a type of Christ. Isaac is a type of Christ. Abraham is a type of God the Father. And Eliezer, who was the servant that was sent out to find a bride for Isaac, is a type of the Holy Ghost. And that Holy Ghost is still seeking out a bride. And he sought you out. That's why the Bible says in 1 Peter 1-2, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit brought you out and brought you into the fold. So, here in Genesis 22, 5, it says, And Abraham said to his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again unto you. Here in Genesis 22, 5, 
we see that what took place between the Father, uh, what took place there on the mount, only transpired between the Father and the Son. Up until that time of the appointed place of the sacrifice, we have two young men accompanying Isaac. Okay? But as they near the place of the burnt sacrifice, these men are left behind. Now these two men here witness Isaac carrying the wood on his shoulder up the mountain, but what took place at the top of that mountain was only between the Father and the Son. No human eye was to behold that. And these two men that were left there are types of the two thieves that followed Abraham's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. These two men, like the spectators of the cross, were not permitted to behold what transpired between the Father and the Son, And that's why Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because he was in communication with the Father when the crucifixion and he breathed his last breath. There's three hours of darkness concealing from every human eye the divine transaction that took place when Jesus was crucified at Calvary. But then notice in verse 6 with me. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering. He laid it upon Isaac his son. He took the fire in his hand and the knife, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and said, My father, and he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Note again in verse 6, Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. As you look at this picture here, I want you to get this in your mind's eye. There was no voice of protest. This was brought out just a moment ago uh, by Isaac as he goes up Mount Moriah to the place of the sacrifice. But to the contrary, what happens? Isaac acquiesces to the father's will. He gives in. He wants to do exactly what his father wants him to do. He puts the the wood on his shoulder, the cross, Mm -hmm. picturing the cross Mm -hmm. on his shoulder, okay? Lo, I've come to do thy will, O God. So I read of Jesus in Isaiah 53, verse 7. And by the way, we'll be sharing that with you in a few weeks. That's a tremendous passage. Uh, I hope you can be here for that lesson. It says, he was oppressed, Isaiah 53, 7. He, by the way, is referring to Jesus Christ. The masculine personal pronoun he is used over 20 times in Isaiah 53, referring to Jesus Christ. It says, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before Kershears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. Now it's interesting in that passage in Isaiah 53, 7, I wasn't even going to share this, it just came to me. I think I'll share it anyway, right? Isaiah 53, 7, notice it goes from the masculine personal pronoun to the feminine. As a sheep before her shears is dumb. Why did it do that? Over 20 times the masculine personal pronoun is used, but when it comes to the submission of Christ, He came as the female lamb. Why? If you ask a a shepherd, he'll tell you that if they go to shear a male lamb, they buck. They fight. They don't like to be sheared. But the female lamb lies there in total submission. And likewise, Jesus, as the female lamb, came in total submission. He never opened his mouth. He paid the price. He paid your sin debt and mine. Christ as a sheep before her shears is done. So he opened not his mouth. So as we look at this text, we see that Christ and the Father were of one accord. And in our text, we see Isaac, a type of Christ, a picture of Christ. Abraham is a type of God the Father. 
both of them being in total accord. And so Isaac here carrying the wood is a profound picture of Christ carrying his cross to Mount Calvary. In the latter part of verse 6, it says that he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them together. Abraham takes uh, the fire in his hand, the fire being a picture of God's divine judgment that's about to be placed upon the sin bearer. And of course, the fire in Abraham's hand points ultimately to the great price of judgment that was leveled against the Son of God who became sin, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And just as Isaac's father took the, in his hand the fire and the knife, likewise in Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says the Lord Jesus was smitten of God and afflicted. The word smitten means to kill. It means to slaughter. Now he was smitten of God and afflicted. Okay? So the death blow that was placed on the Son of God was placed there by God. But which member of the Godhead? Remember Jesus said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? The Father had his back turned. That left the Holy Spirit. Who, by the way, uh, performed the duties of the high priest. And that's why it says in the New Testament, Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God. Now we'll have more to say about that. We'll be talking about Melchizedek when we get into Isaiah 53. We are no way going to have enough time to go through all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'll invite, invite y'all all to my house. Yeah. We're going to show up at your doorstep. Okay. <laughs> what was that you said? <laughs> Can you elaborate? Joe, go ahead, Mark. Was uh, like verse 8 where Abraham says, My son God will provide himself a lamb. I mean, do you consider that? Prophetic. Absolutely. Yeah. And I'm glad you yeah. said that because we're gonna we're almost there. I'm gonna be talking about that in a minute. It you know, some of the modern translations translate that God will provide for himself. No, That's not what the Hebrew says. The Bible says God will provide himself a lamb. Mm -hmm. See, I'm old fashioned. I know people oh Mark, you're not up to date. You know, you've got this old Bible you <laughs> but you know what? The old Bible served me well all these years. I <laughs> uh, anyway. I'm not, and by the way, I'm not chasing any rabbits here. No, so if you have a new translation, that's fine. I have, I have no problem. But I, I want you just to be careful sometimes because when things like that pop up, you got to be careful. That's all. God will provide himself a lamb, uh, as it says in verses 7 and 8. And this text shows beyond a shadow of a doubt that when Jesus died upon Calvary, it was God dying in the person of his son. That's right. And what Abraham is saying is that to Isaac is that God will fix himself up as the Lamb of God that taketh away to the sin of the world. That's why the Bible says in Acts 20, 28, what does it say? God purchased the church with his own blood. You want to get a cultist all shook up? You know, that don't, they don't believe that Jesus Christ is God? The Bible says in Acts 20, 28, God purchased the church with his own blood. When did he have blood? In the person of Christ, right? Okay, so as we look at this God, Okay, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah. yes Miss Pat. 2028. Okay. I think that's right. I've been slipping tonight a little bit. Now that we got that out of the way. Okay. All right. Okay. So it's interesting here that God will provide Himself, not a substitute. Nothing would suffice outside of God Himself dying. Not an angel, not a seraphim, not a ram, not a 
a, a, a dove, not a sheep. But when Jesus died, it was God giving Himself upon Calvary. And that's exactly what happened when the virgin conceived and brought forth a son. The virgin-born Son of God was God providing Himself a sacrifice. Now, ladies and gentlemen, men could not have written that. Uh, Shakespeare could not have written that. Chaucer could not have written that. The great philosophers and uh, the, the, the uh, college educators with several PhDs could not have written that. Had men written verse 8, they would have said, God will provide for himself. Yeah. But it doesn't say that. The word himself. for is conspicuously absent. And that's why in your King James Bible it says God will provide himself. The only conclusion any rational person could come to is that God knew he'd fix himself up to be the Lamb. That's why John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. And in every true sense of the word, God is the Lamb that paid your sin debt and mine. Now notice in verse 9 with me, Genesis 22, And they came to the place which God had told him of, and Abraham built an altar there, and laid the wood in order, and bound Isaac his son, and laid him uh, on the altar upon the wood. And Abraham stretched forth his hand, took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called out unto him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. And he said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither thou do anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thy only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram was caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the, the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day in the mount of the Lord, it shall be seen. So here in verse 13, the typology passes from Isaac to the ram who was offered up. Notice the scripture says the ram was offered up in his stead. This ram is a picture of and the foreshadowing of Christ dying in the stead of sinners, which you and I are, right? Already in the place of death, bound, unable to help ourselves. We can't lift ourselves by our bootstraps. The knife of God's judgment was hanging over us. In fact, if you go over to the New Testament, to Hebrews 11, verses 17 through 19, it says, By faith Abraham, when he was tried, he offered up Isaac. And he that had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called, accounting that God was able to raise him up uh, even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure. Now what did we talk about last week? The Bible tells you right here that what you have in Genesis 22 is a figure. The word figure is the same Greek word for type. It's a type or a figure or a shadow of things to come. So the whole message of Genesis 22 is a shadow or a figure of what was going to happen in the New Testament. And right here, here in Hebrews, the, this, the writer of Hebrews comes right out and tells you what happened to Christ. In that text is a picture of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It was a figure of him who was to come. So from this scripture, we note that Genesis 22 not only presents Christ offered upon an altar, but Christ raised from the dead on the third day. As you study the text, you'll note that during the three days that lapsed from the time Abraham received the command of God to offer Isaac as a burnt offering, Abraham 
figured he's dead. He's, he's already gone. But now to complete this wonderful picture illustrated so vividly here in Genesis 22, note the picture of the ascension of Christ. It doesn't stop with just the resurrection. It's interesting to note that after we read of Isaac being laid upon the altar, nothing further is said of him in Genesis 22. Look again at verse number 19 with me. It says, So Abraham returned unto uh, his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. We see in this verse that Isaac is still upon the mount. What's that a picture of? doesn't say anything about Isaac coming down the mountain and going with them. He's not even mentioned again. Why? God wanted you to see the type there. He wanted you to see how far he's taken this. Isaac's still on the mount. What's that a picture of? That's a picture of Christ on the Mount of Olives where he ascended into heaven 40 yeah. days later. Yeah. Yeah. That's your type right there. That's enough to make an Episcopalian shout if you think about it. <laughs> you know? Really? Okay? Now, let's move on to something here in Genesis 22 that's rarely mentioned, but it has tremendous significance, and that's the wood. The wood's mentioned five times in Genesis 22, verse 3, verse 6, verse 7, and twice in verse 9. And any time God mentions something that many times in a passage of Scripture, it needs to perk us up a little bit and perk up our ears and want to listen to what God is trying to show us. Note, if you would, the typology of the wood, the picture of the wood. First of all, the wood was placed upon the animal, number one. Secondly, the wood was later placed upon the sun. And then later, the wood is placed upon the altar. The wood is spelled out five times in this passage. <clears throat> now, what typology or what significance does the wood give us in this particular story? Well, here's the answer. <laughs> here's the answer, okay? The wood in the story of Genesis 22 is a picture or a type of my sin and your sin. Notice in Isaiah 53, 6, And the Lord hath laid on him, Christ, the iniquity of, of us all. Mm -hmm. Just like Abraham laid on the animal the iniquity of us all, the wood. And then later, Abraham laid upon his son the wood that bore it to the mountaintop. So as you look at this, the wood as a type of sin being bore away from us and moved as far as the east is from the west, we see this in beautiful typology here. The animal, first of all, yes, yes, ma'am. <coughs> Excuse me. If the wood is a type of sin, that the animal represents the Old Testament way of sacrifice, and then the sun is the New Testament, and how like sin was forgiven in both dispensations. That's a, that's a that's a good point. Yes, you could you could definitely say that. <coughs> Excuse me. The uh, the the actual donkey here that carried the wood, and by the way, uh, nobody. Uh, don't think I have COVID. I don't. Okay, I have the, I have a little <coughs> got this uh, pollen. I've got a light colored car, as you can see, pollen this thick on it. Yeah. And I just got over bronchitis. So if you hear me choke, COVID boy. No, no I don't have COVID. Right. <laughs> I don't. I don't have COVID. Okay, I don't have COVID. Isn't that a shame that you got to spell that out nowadays? Yeah. I mean, used yeah. to you could yeah. cough yeah. or sneeze and it was okay. Yeah. Now it's like I don't have COVID. I swear. But. Uh, but I wanted to. I know that that is a touchy thing, and I certainly respect that the people are concerned about it. But yeah, you're right. It is a shame we have to worry about that. Uh, 
Oh, I'm sorry. Back to what she was saying. Yes. Okay, we're, we're going to cover, basically, as we go through this lesson, we're going to have a lot to say about that. And uh, in order for me, what I'd like to do is get through that, which will probably answer your question. But if it doesn't, when we get to the end, we'll uh, go back and address that, okay? And thank you for the question, by the way. Okay. <clears throat> Abraham laid upon the animal the iniquity of us all, the wood. And then later, Abraham laid upon his son the wood that bore it up to the mountaintop. So as you look at this, you see the wood is a type of sin being borne away from us. And as you get the typology, you see the animal loaded down with that wood. And I can see that little beast of burden carrying that wood. He's uh, got it loaded on both sides, as I said earlier, where it's draped over the side of that little animal. He has to carry it 20 miles from the plains of Mamre to the mountains of Moriah. And he has to carry that wood across jagged mountains with sharp rocks. And some may wonder, well, why didn't Abraham wait till he got to Moriah to get the wood? Why does the typology start at Abraham's tent and the wood is loaded upon the animal at Abraham's tent? Well, Abraham didn't wait until he arrived at Moriah and then cut some trees down for a burnt offering. But he carried the wood with him, and of course the typology had to be that way if it's going to be a symbol of my sin and my iniquity. We see that's exactly what we see when we picture a poor lost sinner today. A sinner carrying that burden, that weight upon his shoulder. A sinner weighed down almost to the breaking point. And of course sinners many times do break. We see people going into the hospital uh, with uh, nervous breakdowns, emotional breakdowns physical breakdowns. Two kids commit suicide. It's commonplace. It's a sad, sad commentary. There's people right here in Crystal River they are so burdened, so heavy, so condemned, so guilty, so indicted that they can hardly live. And some people become so weighted down that they actually do what these kids did, commit suicide just the other day. You know, when I got saved, nobody had to convince me I was a sinner. <clears throat> you know, drugs, LSD, all that stuff. I take a boat out doing 70 miles an hour down the intercoastal in Fort Lauderdale hallucinating. Now you tell me God was not there for me. You know, God knew, he knew what I would be. You know, I like what D.L. Moody said, the great preacher, pastor of the Moody Church of Chicago. He had a dream that he died and went to heaven. And when he got to heaven, at heaven's gates, there was a, a sign out front that said, whosoever will, let him come. He got inside the gates and he turned around and he looked back and he saw another sign that said, chosen before the foundation of the world. Wow. wow. That's good. You know, so fantastic. So we see that little animal loaded down with the wood being a picture of a poor sinner carrying the burden and the weight of his sin to the judgment place. And folks, mark it down tonight. You'll either uh, place your sin at the cross where it's already been paid for, or people will carry that sin to the great white throne judgment right. where they'll be ultimately cast into the lake of fire. Every sinner carries a load of sin. They either unload it at the cross or they take it to the great white throne. But oh, happy day, happy day. When that sin was judged at Calvary, I unloaded it at Calvary's cross and no longer had to carry that burden any longer. The reason, ladies and gentlemen, homes are destroyed left and right 
here in Citrus County and across America is because of sin. The reason the suicide rate is so high is because of sin. The reason murders and rape cases and child molestation is so high is because of sin. The reason that we have these transvestites and homosexuality and promiscuity at an overwhelming level is because of sin. But I'm glad I can report to you tonight that though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Any sinner anywhere that comes to Calvary and trusts the finished work of Christ can have their sins forgiven and obliterated. By the way, when when you got saved, your sins were atoned for. Not like the Old Testament. You say, why is that, Brother Mark? Well, the Old Testament, let me just use this right here. Let's just say this black is my Bible here. It represents my sin. In the Old Testament, when the sins were atoned for, they were covered for a year. But every year that you have to come back on the Day of Atonement and have your sins atoned for. Romans 5.11 is the only place in the New Testament where the word atonement is found. But it doesn't mean covering like it did in the Old Testament. It means to make an exchange. Christ exchanged his righteousness and imputed that to your account for your sin. And that's why there's no condemnation that are in Christ Jesus because your sins are gone. They're buried in a Sadducee's grave from which there's no resurrection. Wow. <laughs> They're gone. Well, you're sitting, now you, you're, you're going to go to a judgment, but not the, not the great white throne. You're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and it's not for your sin. Your sin's already been paid for. You're going to go to the judgment seat of Christ, and you'll be judged for your works after you've been saved to receive reward or lose reward. So as we look at this, that little beast, uh, it's a sad picture to see. He's carrying that heavy load across the jagged mountaintops, but that little beast, is a picture of a lost sinner carrying his sin, carrying that wood on his back, the, uh, the drinking wood and the cussing wood and the gambling wood. But when that happens, if, uh, and you have uh, that sin in your life, the family suffers, the mom suffers, the daddy suffers, the friends suffer, all because of the load of sin. But then alas, they arrive at the right place, the place of the altar. And Abraham tells the servants, you hold this little donkey right here. Uh, I'm going to do something. And he took the wood off that animal's back. He put it on the back of his son, piece by piece. He took the drinking wood off and placed it on him. The cussing wood, the adultery wood, the unbelieving wood, the lust wood, the gambling wood, the gossip wood, the malice wood, the covetous wood. He put all of that on the back of his son. And I imagine when he got all that wood off that little beast, uh, after having carried that wood for all that way, that little beast, I can see him kick his hind legs up and jerk his head back. I can see him run down to the creek and get some water. I can see him head over, uh, kicking his legs up and rolling in the grass. And he's happy. He's happy. Why? He's been relieved. His burden's gone. The wood's been taken off. The sin's been taken off. No wonder it took two servants to hold that little animal down. Although that wood was taken off of him, a picture of your sin and mine. And I imagine that little beast might have looked at the sun and said to himself, I wonder if he's going to be able to carry that up Mount Moriah. But that little beast doesn't know the sun like you and I know the sun. Amen? I see that little beast is liberated. He's happy. He's braying. He's 
uh, he's kicking his heels up. And that's what salvation's all about, friend. One day God took the condemnation from me, the judgment from me, and the despair away from me, and he took the night away from me, and one day the sun arose. And that sun has never set. And yes, one day the sun's going to get brighter and brighter until the perfect day arises, which is eternity future at the end of the millennium. So when the load of sin was removed from me, it was placed upon the back of my Savior and Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ. He carried it into hell. That's why the Bible says his soul was not left in hell, neither did his flesh see corruption. He bore our sins away in the pits of hell, and that's why our sins are gone. So finally, when the wood or the sin was taken off the beast and put upon the sun, I see the sun tread with unsteady feet and shaky knees as he carries that awful load, but nonetheless he carries it. And by this I'd like to say I believe that every sin that was ever committed or ever will be committed was represented in that load of wood yeah. on the back of the sun. Yeah. And Isaac carried it up Mount Moriah, which is we know to be the same place as Mount Calvary. And when they finally got to that place, Abraham said, uh, he said, son, this is the place. And Abraham took some stones, he made an altar, and by piece by piece, he took the wood off and he placed it on that altar. And I'm glad, ladies and gentlemen, my sin is judged at the right place. It's judged at the altar. Yeah. And so the dialogue between Abraham and Isaac takes place where Abraham said, God will provide himself a sacrifice. And God provided the ram, and the ram uh, was used as the sacrifice. And I imagine Isaac stood back and, and watched, and Abraham put the fire to that wood. Here, of course, is a picture of God's righteous judgment being vindicated. The Bible says God is a consuming fire. He does judge sin, but he also is a God of mercy. And so the carcass of that animal is a picture of Jesus, the Lamb of God, dying upon Calvary. But notice what happens to the wood here. Now keep in mind, the wood is a type of your sin and a type of my sin, a picture of our sin. As you look, we see the wood was consumed, right? The only thing you've got when this episode closes and the curtain rains down on Mount Moriah, the only thing left is ashes. And you can rest assured the weight of sin's gone. The, you can rest assured the reality of sin is gone. The evidence of sin is gone. And the only thing left after this drama takes place is the ashes of memory. The ashes of memory. I read in Romans 8, 1, there's no, therefore now no condemnation that are in Christ Jesus. My sins have been atoned for. And Isaac came off the mountaintop. He didn't have one piece of wood on his shoulder uh, because the price had been completely paid. And he gets back down to the valley beneath and they had to chase that little beast down because he was so happy he was so liberated, he couldn't contain himself. <laughs> and, and when they went back home, there was no burden for that little donkey to carry. The sin was gone. The burden and the weight were removed. And I'd like to report to you that the sin question is settled. Now, sin's a reality. And I'll not make a joke about it, and I'll not a smile about it or wink at it. Sin's a reality. But the problem's gone. And the reason is because the fire of God's judgment has been released against it. And the day that you went to Calvary and I went to Calvary, Calvary, we came back as free as that little animal. No burden, no judgment, no guilt. He said, now wait a minute, Brother Mark. 
you're not facing up to reality. One day you're going to die. Well, my friend, if that should happen before the rapture, and quite frankly, I think I'll see the upper taker before the undertaker, amen, the way things are going. But if that should happen, my sins have been consumed by the judgment of God. My sins have been devoured in the fires of God's judgment. And the only thing left for me, this is 22 last week, we were scheduled to teach this week on the Lamb. But you know what? I went through my notes on that, and I did not have a piece about it because I knew there was no way I could teach that. There's so much content in that. It's actually a two- or three-week. Uh, it's been like probably ten years since I taught that passage. And so I had forgotten how extensive the notes were in that. So we're going to go back. We're going to hit something that we hit in the fall, but I'll be adding passages. So those of you that... We're here when we did the lesson on the Ten Patriarchs of Genesis chapter 5. Most of you in here have not heard that, uh, but it's a a passage that uh, probably has more uh, typology in it than anything we're going to teach. These Ten Patriarchs are the head, the family heads of the Ten Generations from Adam. And if you look, if you study their Hebrew names you have in perfect order the plan of redemption from the fall of man to the millennial reign of Christ. All in these names right here. So, uh, you're going to, I think you'll get a blessing out of this tonight. We're going to, does anybody, uh, I know some of you guys that were here the last time have a copy. Let's go ahead and start these around here. And then we'll uh, start these over here. And you can insert that. And you know, you'll notice there that there's room to jot down some notes next to each one of the names as we go through this. Everybody got one? Everybody got one? For your wife? There we go. Good. Perfect. We need to know that I have one. Did you get one? Yeah, he got a new book, so yeah. But uh, before we get into that lesson, I want you to look at a couple other things here. The next week, we're going to be going into the seven feast days of Leviticus chapter 23. And that's going to be uh, something I think will be a real eye-opener, too. You, you see so much in perfect order uh, regarding the plan of redemption and that as well. And then the following week, the sword of victory. Uh, I brought that message a number of times, that lesson a number of times. I had a guy actually make me a plaque with a sword on it. He got God touched his heart. And he made a, He had a sword that he'd gotten from South America. He put it on a plaque and he put the name of it. He carved it. He was a, a guy that could, a craftsman. And I still have that to this day. But we're going to be teaching that in the fifth week. And then the second son of Bathsheba will be week six, which is a tremendous message on the grace of God. How God, how merciful God is. How God is a God of the second chance and the third chance and the 20th chance, right? <clears throat> so... Uh, Ruth, the Romance of Redemption, great picture of Christ in the church. You're going to see that in typology in week 7. And then the three questions of Isaiah 53, 
Who hath believed our report? Said the prophet Isaiah. And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? And then the third question, who shall declare his generation? See, Isaiah was uh, dumbfounded. When he began to get the, the revelation about the crucifixion of Christ, he was basically saying, I know the nation of Israel is not going to believe this. They're not going to accept this Messiah. So who hath believed our report? If the sons of Abraham are not going to believe it, then who's going to believe it? Well, we, have, we know who believes it. The Gentile bride believes it, okay? But there's a lot of meat in that passage. We'll be talking about Christ in the crucifixion. We'll be talking about, the Bible says, He was smitten of God. He was put to death. And we know the Father had His back turned. So we know it was the Holy Spirit that actually placed the death blow on the Son. And we're going to talk about that. So there's a lot of good stuff. I hope you'll... Uh, uh, be able to attend all the classes. We know sometimes things come up and you can't do it, but it's a joy to have you tonight. And, and I'm sorry that I asked, when did you say you were going to be able to do the lamb, or we're not? We're, we're not going to be able to do it this session, but uh, okay. you'll, you'll notice uh, in the table of contents there, I put some of the greatest Old Testament chapters, part mm -hmm. one. Right. So it's eventually there'll be a part two. And oh, we'll... we know there's going to be many parts. <laughs> <laughs> many, yeah. many, many, many parts. <clears throat> Praise God. This is never yeah. going to end. Yeah. Well, you know, Miss Cindy here, uh, you know, she she reminds me that this, I may think this is an eight-week class, yeah, but actually it's, it's an eight-year class. And... <laughs> exactly. But we're anyway. Anyway, we're glad that you're here tonight, and uh, let's open tonight with a word of prayer, shall we? Yes. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace, we thank you for your peace, yes. and we thank you, God, that you're in the business of touching the hearts of your people. Yes. Lord, may the word of God uh, illuminate itself to the hearts and minds of those here tonight. Lord, I thank you for your word, I thank you for this text in Genesis, to think of how all the way back in the fifth chapter of the Bible... Uh, what we're going to study tonight could actually be there and be there for us to study and to learn from and to be blessed from. So God bless your word tonight. Bless your people in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you look at this passage tonight, you, in Genesis chapter 5, if you haven't already turned there, go ahead and turn to Genesis 5. Uh, we have the ten generations from Adam to Noah. And the heads of these generations are the ten patriarchs. Now, what's a patriarch? A patriarch biblically speaks of the fathers of the human race or the male heads of house in the early chapters of the human family. I'd like you to take your pen out and in your Bible, I'd like you to number from one to ten as we go down these ten patriarchs. Uh, as you study, you're going to find these names that we have here of these patriarchs uh, have tremendous significance and they speak volumes as to God's purpose and to God's plan of redemption. In verse 1, we have the first name Adam. If you would underscore in Genesis 5, verse 1, underscore Adam. Joe, good to see you, buddy. We've got, uh, let's see here, There's we got a couple of places. There's a couple back here in the back. Uh, oh, right over there. His wife's coming too. Oh, she's coming good. Yeah. Great. Yeah, is that okay? Yeah, that's one. Right over that area. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Did you get one of these? Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, you got one? Yeah, okay. She's got one. Okay, good. All right. No, away from the air. She won't like that. Good evening. She's sitting right here because 
Come right on in. We're just I'm getting just started. You came at a good time. Maybe you slide in here again. Be all There's a place back there or up here? Either way. Yeah. We have no music tonight for musical chairs. Okay. 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 So Adam is one. Adam is one. Okay, so we're in Genesis chapter 5, and we're dealing with the 10 patriarchs of Genesis 5. We're going to find that their Hebrew names are going to be incredibly significant. So uh, in your Bible, Genesis chapter 5, beginning with verse 1, underscore Adam. Then if you would, uh, jump down to verse number 3. Come right on in. Uh, Jump down to verse number 3, and we have the second father of these 10 generations, Seth. Underscore the name Seth. And then if you'll jump down to verse 6, we have the third name, and that third name is Enos. Verse number 6, Enos. And then if you jump down to verse number 9, you have the fourth name, Canaan. Canaan. And then if you jump down to verse 12, we have the fifth name, Mahalil. Mahalil in verse number 12. And then the sixth patriarch put a six next to Jared in verse number 15. Jump down to verse 15 and underscore the name Jared and put a six there. And then if you'll jump down to verse 18, we have the seventh name, Enoch. If you would, put a seven next to the name Enoch in verse number 18. And then in verse number 21, we have the eighth of these patriarchs, the name Methuselah, the oldest man that ever lived. And that's uh, number eight in verse number 21. How old did he live? 969 years. Oh, wow. Back in those days, by the way, the reason they lived so long, the fountains of the great deep had not been broken up because the flood had not taken place. And so there was a body of water that surrounded the earth that filtered out the ultraviolet rays. The thing that that ages people is the ultraviolet rays of the sun. And, of course, there was no pollution at that time. So people, it was not uncommon for people to live three, four, five hundred years. In this case, nine hundred years. What was number five? Uh, Number... Oh, number five? Okay, the, the fifth one uh, was Mahalil in verse 12. Mahalil, verse number 12. And then in verse 21, the eighth name, Methuselah. And then if you'll jump down to verse number 25, we have the ninth, ninth name, Lamech, in verse number 25. Put a nine next to Lamech. And then in verse number 29 is the tenth name, Noah. Noah. Now, most of you here, I think, have gotten that sheet we passed out with the ten names for you to write notes on. Has everybody got those? Good. Okay. We're good to go. Now, you say, what significance, Brother Mark, do you find in these names? What's so special about these names? I thought the genealogies were boring, something you like to read over as fast as you can to get uh, to the next part of the text. I believe as you study this passage with me tonight, you'll see that these names have tremendous uh, importance and tremendous significance in spelling out the plan of redemption. Today, many times, people will name their kids uh, or their children uh, after Hollywood actors or after movie stars or sports heroes or uh, somebody in the limelight of society. Uh, sometimes they'll name a parent will name a child after their favorite aunt or uncle or they'll name a child uh, after another relative or a brother or sister. And there's nothing wrong with that. But in the Old Testament, the names had tremendous significance. If you look at this in the 
For example, in the 49th chapter of Genesis, here we find Jacob well stricken with age, and uh, he uh, calls his 12 sons to his side, and he's leaning there on his staff. I can picture that, and possibly so he can breathe properly. And one by one, Jacob begins with Reuben, his firstborn, and right down to Benjamin, his lastborn child. And one by one, Jacob gives out a word of prophecy about every one of those kids. He knows them like he knows the back of his hand. And uh, he can read them like he, they were admitting exactly what they are. And every one of those 12 sons of Jacob fit the personality of those boys to a T. If you study, you'll find that that is true. And so it is sometimes in the scriptures that names speak a great deal about the personality of the individual. They speak a great deal about their faith. They speak a great deal about their destiny. And I believe that God in his great program named certain people what he named them to show his inspiration of his word, the verbal inspiration of the word of God. For example, it's not an accident, for example, that Noah was named Noah. The very name Noah is important, as you're going to see here in just a little while. It was not an accident that first man Adam was created out of the dust of the ground and that his name was called Adam. Now, I know that there's a lot of argument about that in our day with theologians. Uh, some of the liberal theologians uh, in our day don't believe there was an Adam. They simply believe Adam is a name uh, that's given to the entire human family, but they don't believe a single man was named Adam. But I don't accept that. I believe the Bible is exactly as it's stated. I believe it's verbally inspired, God-breathed, and without error. Uh, and so, as far as I'm concerned, there was a man named Adam, just like there's a name uh, of a person sitting in this room that holds your name, my name. And I believe that God made Adam out of the dust of the earth, just as the Scripture declares. And I believe that the name Adam is the name that God wanted him to have. And the meaning of that name, along with the meaning of all ten of these patriarchs, is greatly important. Now, as you study this chapter, you'll discover that there are, in these ten names, you have God's eternal purpose and redemption spelled out in typology, from the first name to the last name. And I want to set forth this truth tonight as God gives me the grace to do so. So be sure to stay in Genesis chapter 5. By way of introduction, I want to say that I believe the Bible is verbally inspired and without contradiction. Yeah, I believe that the Bible doesn't go off in a thousand directions at a time, but I believe that scarlet cord of redemption is interwoven throughout the entire Bible. The Bible has one personality throughout all of the, its content, and that one personality is central, paramount, and uppermost, and that personality is the Lord Jesus Christ. I've discovered, as I shared with you last week, that in the Old Testament, I have the New Testament enfolded. And then I've discovered that in the New Testament, I have the Old Testament unfolded. Man could not have written the Bible. I've heard all of my life that there's contradictions in the Bible. I've had people try to show me the contradiction. But I'd, I'd like to share with you tonight, I've found no contradictions. I actually have a book in my library, by the way, written by a guy that uh, is no longer living, but has a genius IQ, an IQ of 180. And he wrote a book that uh, deals with 800 so-called mistakes in the Bible. And in every single case out of that 800, was you, as you study that and you read those notes that he shares, you'll find that not one mistake was made. The mistake was not in the Bible. It was with the man that made the accusation against the Bible. 
So I'd be the first to admit there's things in the scripture I don't understand. Uh, I have a basic understanding, but there's some things that I don't know as well as I'd like to know. But I submit to you tonight, uh, because I don't fully understand it, doesn't mean there's a, uh, there's a mistake. It simply means I don't completely understand it. So God's word is God-breathed. Another reason I believe the Bible to be the preserved infallible word is because of its typology, like you're going to see tonight. Now, what's typology? We talked about that last week. It's the study and interpretation of types and the symbols in the Bible. A type is something that prefigures. It's a picture of something, perhaps in the Old Testament, that prefigures something that's going to happen in the New Testament, or already has happened. Now, when we look at this uh, uh, text here, we know that Moses wrote the first five books of the, called the Pentateuch. And we know that Moses was no doubt a great lawgiver, a great man of God, a great leader, a great prophet. And we that are born again uh, believe that. Yet Moses, with all of his genius and all of his uh, knowledge, could not have written the fifth chapter of Genesis unless he was inspired by God Almighty. The very fact that we have the Word of God in our hands today is an indication that God's hand is on this book. You know what? If you... If you study, you'll find that Isaiah is the miniature Bible. Many people call it the miniature Bible. Why? It has 66 chapters. The Bible has 66 books. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah deal with law and judgment. The first 39 books of the Bible are the Old Testament. They deal with law and judgment. In fact, there's such a difference between chapters 39 and 40, where chapter 40 begins through chapter 66, which matches Matthew to Revelation, there's such a contrast that some Bible scholars used to refer to Isaiah as Deutero-Isaiah. They believe the two Isaiahs wrote the, the book of Isaiah because the contrast is so great. Only one Isaiah wrote Isaiah. But it's interesting, the first 39 books deal with law and judgment, the first 39 chapters rather, the first 39 books of the Bible deal with law and judgment. Chapters 40 through 66 deal with grace, truth, and mercy. The 40th book in the Bible, Matthew, through the book of Revelation, grace, truth, and mercy. Genesis chapter 1 said, In the beginning God created the heaven and earth. Isaiah chapter 1, hear O heavens, hear O earth. Isaiah chapter 40, which matches the 40th book in the Bible, which is Matthew, said, Behold the voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Referring to John the Baptist. Guess what the 40th book of the Bible says? Behold the voice of him that cries in the wilderness. Isaiah chapter 66 says, I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Revelation, the 66th book of the Bible. I saw a new heavens and a new earth. Now, if that's not the power of God and the, the anointing of God, I don't know what is. Now, and, and there's no the, way that everybody had all of this. Exactly. Yeah. It, I, I mean, we didn't have... Social media back there, back then. We didn't have telephones. We didn't right. have this. We didn't have that. There's no way this person, this prophet, this disciple, talked to this. Yeah, there's just no way. We didn't have encyclopedias. We didn't have. We didn't have all of this. That's exactly right. And, and here's the thing. You know what's the cent the central theme of the scripture in the New Testament? What's the the heartthrob of the New Testament? Would you say the crucifixion, the death, yeah. burial, and resurrection? Yeah. Okay. <clears throat> if you take chapters 40 through 66 of Isaiah, you know what the middle chapter is? 
Isaiah 53. And what's Isaiah 53? The crucifixion. Now there's a lot more to that little uh, blurb that I shared with you right there. Okay, there's a lot more to it, but that just kind of gives you a bird's eye view that this book is an unusual book. It's not just any book. Right. Yes, ma'am. I, I used to take Isaiah 53 and I would test like people around me and I, I started with my little brother and I read it to him and I said, is that New Testament or Old Testament? And he went, New Testament? I said, no. <laughs> <laughs> Good for you. Good for you. That's great. You know, I had an uncle, uh, my dad's sister and, and my uncle Hank met uh, in college, but um, when they, they met in college, my aunt before that was a singer. She sang at the Rainbow Room in New York, which was a very famous place. And she, that's where I guess my little sister gets her talent, you know, she, uh, with her singing and all that. I told my little sister when I sing, when you sing, everybody stands up and applauds. When I sing, the dog barks and the, and the mule leaves the barn, you know. <laughs> but, but anyway, they met each other in college, and my Uncle Hank went on to play for the uh, Detroit Lions, and uh, she went on for a while with her singing career. But my Uncle Hank was Jewish. And I told him one time, I said, Uncle Hank, have you ever thought about this? Roses are reddish and violets are bluish. If it wasn't for Christmas, we'd all be Jewish. <laughs> okay. uh, but anyway, I got him laughing, and then I got him into Isaiah 53. I got him into Isaiah 53, and he got choked up. Now, whether he ever got saved, I tried to lead him to the Lord. Whether he ever got saved, I don't know. But he saw that that... Uh, we're going to be studying Isaiah 53, as you know. Uh, but the masculine personal pronoun, he, referring to Christ, is used over 20 times in that text. And so we'll be sharing that with you. But uh, I think, was there another yes. hand here? Yes, ma'am. Uh, uh, well, years ago, I only thought the Bible was only a New Testament. But then I, uh, as long as when I became a Christian and I had to study more of the Old Testament, I started to see like it's a river coming in the middle from the Old Testament to the New Testament. And all this river is bringing all that debris, cleaning it up, cleaning it up to, the, or to Jesus. So it's completely. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a fascinating book. I think you're going to see tonight as we go through some of this, you know, um, if we start, let's go ahead and start here with the first of these ten patriarchs, Adam, the first man of the human family. We talked about the fall of Adam, why, a couple of weeks ago. But Adam, who was made in the creative genius of God out of the dust of the ground, and God breathed into his nostrils and he became a living soul. You say, Brother Mark, what does the name Adam mean? Well, you'll be shocked when I share this with you, but the name Adam literally means, the Hebrew name means the clay man, or the man of the red dirt, or the man of the red earth. That's what his name means. Isn't it striking to you tonight that God would name his crowning work of creation in such a fashion as that? God doesn't dress him up. God doesn't put deodorant on him or powder him up or, uh, you know, or, or, or try to paint him up in any way, shape, or form. The Lord said, Adam, and when he said Adam, that name is the red man, the man of the dirt. Uh, the nobody, okay? Today we we tend to name our kids uh, happy names, you know, like uh, Joy or Melody or things like that. But there's not one good thing that you find in the name Adam, not anything glamorous about that whatsoever. And God named first man Adam 
And that told the very truth of his nature. And everywhere Adam would go, and every time somebody learned his name, it meant the nobody, the dirt man. And my friend tonight, I'd like to remind you, this is suggest that Adam had no royal blood. And by the way, there's no such thing as royal blood. It's all the blood of Adam. Every one of us in this building tonight are distant relatives in that we all came from the same loins. And since we're all originally from the loins of Adam, we inherited that lowly name Adam. Man of the dust, the dirt man, the nobody. Now to me that suggests the total depravity of man and man's dire need of the grace of God. The first man didn't come into this uh, world painted up, uh, pampered, dressed up, glamorized. He kind of came in the raw. And the first man needed to be redeemed by the grace of God. He fell and he was redeemed by faith. But Adam had no virtue of his own. He had no merits of his own. He had no righteousness of his own. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. And we're going to see here, you know, sometimes uh, when we go through uh, the Bible and we're talking about a certain topic, it's good to, to embellish on that a little bit. Uh, you know, there, there was nothing in us to draw God to us. If you look at Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it says, that is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We don't possess any self-righteousness. There's none that understandeth. Now watch this, verse 11. There is none that seeketh after God. Now, there are people today that try to bring glory to man. Oh, look at what I did. I accepted Christ. Well, if you did accept Christ, that's wonderful. I, I rejoice with you. But guess what? You have nothing to be proud of. That's God gave, the Bible says, for by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's the gift of God. Even the faith we had to accept Christ was a gift. It wasn't something we mustered up, right? There's none that seeketh after God. They're all gone out of the way, altogether become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, good, no, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. With their tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And then in verse 17 and 18, in the way of peace have they not known. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Look, I can relate to that. Before I got saved, I, I didn't fear God. Now, I, I did show respect. If, if uh, one of you, you know, had known me prior to uh, getting saved and you had talked to me about the Lord, I would have been respectful. But did I believe it? Not really. No, I, I maybe had a head consciousness that there was a God. But, but uh, you know what? This makes us realize that all of us in this room need the same thing that Adam needed, and that's the grace of God. We need the mercy of God. And God gave Adam a name that will forever make it impossible for him to claim any natural goodness of his own. That makes me think of the song when I think of this passage. It, that song that says, My sins, they are many, and my virtues are few, but the blood of my Savior will carry me through. That's what it's all about. It's all about the blood. So God named Adam the red man, the dirt man. The red man signifying and suggesting his need of the grace of God. He was totally deprived, depraved and in need of redemption. But look at the second name with me, if you would, in verse 3. Notice the name Seth, the second son of Adam. Or rather, the son of Adam. Now keep in mind, Adam had two sons before Seth came along. One of them ended up dead, the other one ended up being put aside. 
So God put both of them aside due to their circumstances, but a third son was born in which the lineage, the Redeemer in the mercy of God would come to redeem Adam's fallen race. And when that third son was named, Adam and Eve had that little baby in their arms, and guess what they named him? They named him Seth. You say, well, Brother Mark, what does the name Seth actually mean in Hebrew? The name Seth in Hebrew means appointed or a substitute needed. Appointed or a substitute needed. What does a totally depraved sinner need? A substitute. Amen? Amen. I'd like to remind you, it was through the loins of Seth that the substitute that saved you and me would come, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's exactly right. In my natural state, as a totally depraved sinner, I needed a substitute. I don't have any hope within my natural self. I don't. I can't lift myself by my bootstraps. No, sir. And so I needed a substitute. And <clears throat> when Seth was born, <clears throat> God gave him a name that suggests to every one of us in this room tonight <clears throat> that a, the substitute needed would be supplied through the loins of Seth. And when you get just this far into these ten names, uh, you don't have to go any further to see the program of God, the economy of God, and the redemption of God. But let's move along. Notice the third name of these ten. In verse number six, uh, you'll find the name Enos. Enos was the son of Seth. And when Enos was born, Seth was 105 years old, and he laid that little boy in his arms, and Seth said, his name is to be Enos. You say, Brother Mark, what does the name Enos mean? The name literally means the dying anointed one. What, is, what does Christ mean in Greek? Anointed. If you look up the name Christ in the New Testament in a Greek dictionary, the, the name Christ means anointed. What does Seth say? The dying anointed one. What was Jesus? The dying Christ, the dying anointed one. Isn't that something? So if you look at these, the pattern of these types that we see here, the continuation of these types, the finality of these types, uh, they're exactly in the same order you find in the New Testament. So again, Enos, meaning the dying Christ or the dying anointed one. Here we see that God gave one that a red man needed, the red dirt man needed a substitute that would die upon the cross of Calvary to pay his sin debt. And every time Adam looked into the mirror of a still lake and saw his image, he was reminded he was a man of the dirt. He was a nobody. He was fallen. He needed redemption. He was sinful. And every time you and I uh, look in the mirror, we're constantly reminded of the same thing. If it wasn't for the grace of God, it'd be pitiful with the last one of us in this room tonight. So when the third son <clears throat> born to Seth, the dying Christ is promised, and this is brought out by the name Enos. And this brings us to the fourth of these ten patriarchs, the Canaan, down in verse number 9, the son of Enos. Look at that with me. Genesis chapter 5, verse 9. <clears throat> and Enos lived 90 years and begat Canaan. Now Canaan is the fourth one to come uh, that we come to in these ten patriarchs. Four in the Bible is the number of the earth. And I want you to watch what the name Canaan literally means in Hebrew. The name Canaan means acquisition or to buy back. What did Jesus do when he died upon the cross? He redeemed or made an acquisition. He bought back 
everything that you and I lost in the fall of Adam. Everything that was lost, and the name Canaan means to purchase or acquisition or to buy back. It was a glad day when the Christ of God left glory, and he voluntarily stripped himself of the glory that he had with the Father. He came to the earth, died upon the cross to purchase or to buy back everything that was lost in Adam. So the name Canaan means to purchase or to buy back. And as I said a moment ago, that the central theme of all the Bible from Genesis to Revelation 22 is redemption. What is redemption? The definition of redemption is the act of procuring the deliverance of persons from the power of its captors. Listen, we were captive by Satan. The Bible says in Colossians, it says we were taken out of the kingdom of darkness and translated into the kingdom of His dear Son. Every person that ever got saved, before they got saved, they were in a kingdom. But it wasn't God's kingdom. It was the kingdom of the devil. And we were translated from that kingdom, according to Colossians, from the kingdom of the devil into the kingdom of God's dear Son. And so Canaan means to purchase, acquisition, or buy back. As I said a moment ago, uh, that's the central theme of the Bible, redemption. So in typology with the fourth man Canaan, God thunders down through the ears that one day he would give his son to purchase that that was lost in the fall. I think it's astounding to realize that these things we're sharing with you are in the fifth chapter of the Bible. We're not talking about something way into the Bible. The very fifth chapter of the Bible, here you have the New Testament uh, types and shadows already being laid out before us. Then jump down with me, excuse me, to verse number 12, to Mahalil. Mahalil literally means resurrection. If you look up the name Mahalil, it means praise of God or resurrection. I want to stop just for a moment, if I may. First, as you look at the order of these types we're looking at here, thank you. First, you've got Adam, a red man, uh, uh, picturing the total depravity of man, the man of the dust, the man of the red dirt. Then you have Seth, which means a substitute needed. His name means appointed in Hebrew or a substitute needed. Then you have Canaan, means to purchase back my redemption. And now you have Mahalil, which means resurrection or praise of God. And what's the capstone of the grace of God? The capstone is the resurrection that took place after three days and nights. Without the resurrection, this Bible lays at our feet in a thousand pieces and is worthless. Without the resurrection, the cross of Calvary is a waste of blood and a waste of energy. Without the resurrection, the Bible does not accomplish what it has to accomplish as far as our redemption is concerned. So in the economy of God, when Moses wrote this fifth chapter of Genesis, as he was directed by the Holy Spirit, God said, now wait a minute, there's going to be another patriarch, he's going to be the fifth patriarch, and his name is going to be Mahalil. And his name will ever, forever remind us on that third day when Christ walked out of the grave to seal the sinner's pardon and to po- totally pay our sin debt upon the cross. Now, if you reverse this order, if you take the order of these ten patriarchs and reverse it, they have no meaning whatsoever. But as you see, in the order that's set before us, if I, it's like a, a beautiful piece of artistry has been taken, has been done here. You know, if I were an artist, and I'm not. My sister's an artist. She she uh, paints for Disney. She paints uh, 
Uh, she has a, a gallery. They got her in Caesar's Palace in Vegas, and she has her artwork is, uh, there. Have all the Disney characters, and she's very good. I mean, she can not only sing <laughs> and do all that, but she she's an artist. Uh, you know, some people get all the talent. You know, I don't know what's go, going on here, but uh, but anyway, uh, but if I were an artist like she is, and I'll get to your question in a moment, I would lay the foundation before I would uh, begin to put the final strokes on it. Right? You lay the foundation, then you put balance in the picture with landscape, and uh, you would put color to the picture. But I would not put the finishing touches on that drawing until step by step everything was on that <coughs> canvas. And that's the way it is with the plan of redemption. The red man is pictured in Adam, need of the grace of God. Seth provides the substitute. Enos pictures the dying Christ that paid for my redemption and yours. And then God declares through Canaan that Christ would purchase or buy back everything that was lost in the fall of Adam. And then our Lord declares in the name Mahalil that one day Jesus Christ would walk out of the grave, just as the scripture says. You have a question. Yeah, what did you say the number five portrays? Grace. Grace. Five can be grace or it can also be death. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Well, the reason why is because this yeah. is in chapter 5 of Genesis, and then this is... The fifth person. Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> this is, she's, she's he, sharp. He's on that day. <laughs> so that's why I wanted to know. That's the reason. This one happens to go through it twice. Yeah. <laughs> Let, let's turn. I'm learning real quick. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking of the resurrection, I'm going to uh, kind of get off the, uh, it is, yeah. out of my thing, normal format here just for a moment with this chapter. I'd like you to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. <laughs> We talked about a class one time, and I know that uh, Cindy would like me to teach the class on Bible hermeneutics. Yes. First Corinthians chapter fifteen. That would be so good. And hermeneutics. Summer would be good for that. In a couple of years, we'll get there. Right? First Corinthians fifteen. If you could get there with me, real quick. That's a chapter where God declares His full mind on the resurrection. And I, I want to turn to that passage. I want to show you a few passages here that I think will help to explain. We know that that name we just gave you is means resurrection in Hebrew. Well, let, let's talk about that just for a minute. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, go to verse uh, number 20 with me if you would. Got too many papers hanging around. Here we go. You want the phone, honey? Yeah. No, no, I'm good. Okay. I'm good. 1 Corinthians 15, beginning with verse number 20, it says, But now is Christ risen from the dead and become the firstfruits of them that slept. Okay? For since by man came death, first man Adam, uh, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But now watch it, verse 23. But every man... In his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are at his coming. <clears throat> now, what are you getting at, Brother Mark? Well, what we're getting at is this. Um, <clears throat> Christ was, in his resurrection, was the firstfruits of them that slept. When he came up out of the grave, according to Matthew chapter 27... The Bible says many of those which slept got up out of the graves and walked around after the after his resurrection. Okay, 
So <clears throat> at that time, in the center of this earth <clears throat> was located was located uh, paradise. Now the compartment of paradise is still in the center of the earth, but it's empty. Paradise was taken above. So the Bible says that Christ, it says his soul was not left in hell, the scripture says, neither did his flesh see corruption. Christ in his soulish body, when he died for you and me, his soulish body took our sins <coughs> and buried him in hell. And my friend, you, you will not ever be able to find one of my sins or yours because they're burnt up, okay? They're gone. The fire of God's judgment was leveled against them. The only thing you'll ever stand before God as a believer and answer for is your works now that you've become a Christian. There's the judgment seat of Christ, which is not a judgment for your sin. It's a judgment for what you've done as a believer since you believe. But notice it says Christ the first fruits. Well, the first fruit saints were the Old Testament saints that got up out of the grave, and when Jesus went up to the ascension, probably 95% of all Bible scholars believe that the Old Testament saints went up with him and that's where they are now. The, the location of paradise now is in the third heaven. That's why Paul said, I was caught up into the third heaven and I was not able to permit the things that God showed me there. So that's, that's where the throne of God is. That's where paradise is located. But that location of paradise, the scripture says in Ezekiel 31, it says that the trees of Eden that were in the Garden of Eden have been replaced and they're placed in the nether parts of the earth. Nether means internal. So where did God put the trees of Eden? In paradise. That's where the trees are. I saw a documentary a while back. God says, we think this might have been the tree in the Garden of Eden. Well, better read Ezekiel 31 because that tree's no longer there. That tree's in the center of this earth. And the Bible says that when the rich man died, he lifted up his eyes being in torment, seeing Abraham afar off and Lazarus being comforted in his bosom. In the Old Testament, when a person died that was, a, was a, a believer, they went to paradise below. And that paradise was a place of comfort. It was a place where water was. It was a place uh, where the redeemed of God uh, stayed until Christ and the first fruits took place at the resurrection. Now, paradise below has been emptied, and that paradise has been taken above. But then notice it says in the text there, but every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are at his coming. Now keep in mind when it says, at, by the way, where it talks about the Old Testament saints coming up and walking around in the city is Matthew 27, verse 52, if you want to jot that down. But what happens is this. It says, afterward they that are at Christ's coming. You've got, hand me that pen there if you would. Thank you. There's two, two phases. Lord, Matthew 27, 52. Uh, no, it's uh, Matthew, Matthew, Matthew 27, 52. 52. <clears throat> the, sec Christ, uh, the second coming, you have two phases. This is the first phase right here. The rapture phase. The second phase is the revelation. revelation phase okay the rapture phase it says afterward they that are at his coming his coming is twofold the rapture phase the revelation phase the rapture phase we know what that is first thessalonians chapter 4 
verses 13 through 18, 1 Corinthians 15, 50 to 58. The Bible says the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trump of God, and the dead in Christ shall rise first. Then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we ever be with the Lord. Wherefore, comfort one another with these words. Now that rapture phase, by the way, takes place prior to the tribulation. Okay? In so Revelation chapter in Christ, 2. And, though? Who's the dead in Christ? The dead in Christ are as every born again believer from the day of Pentecost so to the rapture. So it's the dead in Christ, not dead in your body. <laughs> no, right. When you you know that when you die, yes. absent from the body, present with the present Lord. Present with the Lord. Right, so you take on a soulish body. Now how do I know that? John said in Revelation, he said, I saw the souls of them beneath the altar that were slain for their testimony. So those tribulation saints, John, when he wrote the Revelation, he said, I saw the souls of them beneath the altar. What altar? God's altar. Okay? So they saw the souls of them. How do you see a soul that doesn't have a body? There's a soulish body. Now, what that entails, I don't know. But we know that when you die, you take you have a soulish body. The Scripture says in First in First Corinthians 13, we shall be known as we are known. That's right. So you're not going to lose your identity. But what is your body going to be like when the, when the rapture takes place? 1 John 3, 2, It doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he shall appear, we shall see him and we shall be as he is. Christ walked through a wall in his resurrected body and then Thomas felt the nail prints in his hand. Your body can materialize or dematerialize at thought. Not so bad, is it? You know? Yeah. I won't need Cousin Ernie's corn medication anymore. But... <laughs> okay. So... So you got the rapture phase. But now wait a minute, Mark. I thought there was more than one rapture. There is. There's seven of them. No extra charge for this. I'm going to pass these out. <laughs> yeah, this is a two for one Sunday. Here we go. You say there's seven raptures. What are you talking about? Well, let me get these back to you. We'll, we don't have time to go through these in depth. Ronnie's looking at me like I fell off the turnip truck. You saw that seven? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no. Oh, good. We need a couple. There, did you get enough? Okay, good. All right, Missy. Here, here, here. Well, give me one, will you? <laughs> yeah. I probably have one laying around here somewhere. Oh, did you? <laughs> okay. So not to keep bugging you about it. But that's what they're talking about when they said everybody has one. What's that? She wants two years. Well, he needs one. Yes, he. Yeah. Do you have an extra of the first? Yeah, here's one. I'm going to take this one. Yeah, take that one. taking yours, Mark. Yeah, that's fine. We said we have enough. We thought we made extra. You guys have some notes on it. Oh, there's notes on it. Which one? This one I want you guys. We all set here? I want the whole Bible. Yeah, can we have your notes? And I think that would be helpful. <laughs> I don't think you'd want to try to decipher this. Yeah, I don't know that I can decipher that. I saw that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. 
Actually, I wouldn't even touch that. I would yeah. have to put on a white glove. I tell everybody this is a loose leaf Bible because the pages come out. They don't. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying it's holy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Folks, let's go over these real quick. We were ta- dealing with uh, Enoch being the first person that was ever raptured. What's the word rapture means? It's a catching away. It's to be translated, to be uh, transported from one place to another. So Enoch was walking with God, and, and, the, and he was not because God took it. You know, there's uh, uh, a lot of us here. I, I was, I've lived quite a few years in the uh, uh, Space Coast, and 15 years total. I ran some businesses over there for a number of years for a company. And my kids, uh, two of my sons, still live there with our grandkids and uh, daughters-in-law and so on. Um, and they both own businesses over there. They're, they're real good kids. You couldn't ask for better kids. But, uh, you know, over there, we, all you heard about was astronauts, you know, and the space uh, shuttles and so on and so forth, and the satellites, and you could watch them all the time, you know, from, the, from your yard, you could watch the spacecraft take off, and uh, they talked about astronauts. Well, you know, uh, astronauts are one thing, but I'm, one of these days, all everybody in this room is going to be a was-not. You're going to, in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, we're going to be was-nots. We're going to be out of here, right? And uh, Enoch was walking with God, and God took him. Okay, so that's the first rapture. Then Elijah, we know he went up in a chariot of fire. Second, first, second Kings chapter 2, verse 11. Then what happened? Jesus, in the ascension, he was on uh, the Mount of Olives, and he was raptured. He was caught away, Right? And then the church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, we just talked about that. The church is going to go up. And by the way, the reason we know that the church will not go through the tribulation, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians that the church is not appointed unto wrath. And what's the tribulation? The day of God's wrath. Okay? And then on top of that, you have the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3, which depict... Seven types of Christians, seven types of churches that exist today. They were actually seven literal churches when John wrote the Revelation. Okay? But they depict church history from the day of Pentecost to rapture. And that's a very interesting. If you study those, you'll that's an interesting study in and of itself. But having said that, those seven churches depict seven types of churches that exist today. It's interesting in Revelation 2 and 3... You have all that information about the seven churches. You have the one that left their first love. You have the Philadelphia church on fire, etc., etc. But then the word church disappears after chapter 3. Yes. Why? Because in Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, you have the words come up hither. That's right. The church is getting out of here. Okay, It's getting up time. And then from that point on in Revelation, you're in the tribulation period. Okay, Up until then... You're you're de- you're not dealing with the tribulation uh, in in and of itself. There's a few references you could say, but basically, r- those seven churches disappear. They're never mentioned again in the book of Revelation. And the very first verse of the chapter that follows that is "Come up hither." Well, well, a rapture. Okay, ties into all these other passages. Then notice in Revelation chapter 11, you have Moses and Elijah, uh, the two witnesses of Revelation chapter 11. And I don't have time to tell you why it's Moses, not Enoch, as the second witness, because we'd be here till 10 o'clock tonight. Well, tell us. <laughs> well, tell us. 
Here's a short version, okay? That's like that's like Pastor Ronnie saying, I'm gonna be done by twelve. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As they say, pass the bread, the baloney's been by, right? Yeah. <laughs> okay. So here's the reasons why it's Moses and Elijah. Okay? Now, in Malachi chapter four, verses four through six. In these particular verses, you are told that Mount Sinai, Israel, the Lord, Moses, and Elijah are the five proper names uh, that will be in the subject of interest at the second coming of Christ. Moses and Elijah are the two witnesses of Revelation 11 for these reasons. Number one, Moses and Elijah and Christ were on Mount Sinai 40 days and nights with nothing to eat or drink. What are the references? 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 8, Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Number 2, Moses died on the east of Jordan on Mount Pisgah, and when Elijah was caught up in a whirlwind, he was caught up at the same place. <clears throat> Moses' body was resurrected, it's believed, uh, Jude verse 9, Deuteronomy 34, 5 and 6. And this is proven by the transfiguration with Elijah. Remember, Moses and Elijah were transfigured with Jesus in, Matthew, uh, in Matthew's Gospel. Then Moses and Elijah were both anointed. Enoch was not anointed. Moses and Elijah smote the earth with plagues. Enoch did not. Moses and Elijah both had ministries that, uh, ministers that actually took up their ministries Moses had Joshua that followed him with signs and wonders. And uh, Elijah had Elisha that followed him with signs and wonders. Is that enough or you want a few more? Okay. okay. Now the next, Moses and Elijah are the last two people mentioned in the Old Testament. And they are mentioned with Mount Sinai and Christ's second advent. Now, I, I don't have time to go into any more. It would take me too much time. We've already... Kind of gone off. But no, that's a very good question, and I'm glad we could at least give you a few points, okay? Alrighty. So now we have Christ, the the first fruits, and afterward they that are at his coming. The second coming of Christ is referred to in two phases the rapture phase of the church and the revelation phase. Now the revelation phase, if we get to that, the tribulation saints will be raptured at the end of the tribulation before the second advent. Okay? Uh, turn in your Bibles to Matthew 24. A lot of times people will use this for the rapture of the church, but if you read Matthew 24, almost the entire chapter is dealing... Um, almost the entire chapter is dealing... Uh, with the tribulation period. If you look at uh, verses 30 and 31, it says, the, the, then the, And then shall appear the sign of, of the Son of Man in heaven, and there's all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven with power and glory, and he'll send his angels with the sound of a trumpet to gather together the elect from the four winds of heaven from one end of heaven to the other, okay? So, that's a picture 
uh, of the rapture of the church when it talks about in verses 40 and 41, uh, two will be in the field, one taken and the other left. Uh, that's a reference uh, to the tribulation saints, not the church. You don't have any church theology in this chapter. Once you pass verse number 4 in Matthew 24, you're in the tribulation period. You can pull it. Now, if you want to draw a spiritual application and say that's a picture of the church, you can do that. But if you read this context, it's all tribulation theology. Now, we went over this. Remember, those of you that were with me in the fall, I went over this verse by verse, but we, which we don't have time to do tonight. But now, one thing I'd like to point out to you <clears throat> is that, you know, when, when the... Uh, if you go to Isaiah 26... You'll see what I'm talking about. Look, go to Isaiah 26 and look at verse number 20. This is the rapture of the tribulation saints. Isaiah 26 and verse number 20. Now if you read this, you'll see that the context is the tribulation. Look at this. Isaiah 26 verse 20. Come my people... When God says my people, he's referring to Israel, right? So those uh, people saved in the tribulation period, God's dealing with Israel in the tribulation. He says, come my people, enter into thy chambers and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. What's the indignation? The, the battle of Armageddon. It's the battle of Armageddon. He said, come into your chamber, get away from this until the indignation. Now watch verse number 21. For behold, the Lord cometh out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. The earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. We know that the, the bloodbath that takes place at Armageddon, the blood will be to the horse's bridle. And God will send the unclean birds in to suck the blood up like a vacuum cleaner. And here the Bible says, Come, my people, enter into thy chambers. Doesn't say anything about them going... Uh, you know, having to endure that battle of Armageddon. God calls the tribulation saints out. That's the rapture of the tribulation saints, which has nothing to do with you and me. We're already gone seven years earlier. Okay? So, <clears throat> in 1 Corinthians 15, when God said, uh, Christ the firstfruits, afterward they that are at His coming, Christ was the first one resurrected, Okay, and then the Old Testament saints came up out of the grave, Matthew 27. They walked around as a, as a witness. Can you imagine that? Being back there in that day, you see Isaiah the prophet, or my goodness, here's Isaiah the prophet. You know, I, you know, you know, I mean, I can't imagine how that all came off, but it did, and they went up in the ascension. Okay, but then you have afterward they that are at his coming. First phase, the rapture of the church. Second phase, the revelation, which comprises the, the, rapture, the rapture of the tribulation saints and the battle of Armageddon. So, very, very interesting. I meant to bring, I had a big chart. I had it last time. I was going to bring it tonight, and I forgot it. I'll bring it. But it shows the seven dispensations. It shows the rapture of the church. It shows the, uh, the tribulation, everything on it. It's about six feet wide. I'll try to bring that maybe next week. Okay, let's get back to our text so, so we seven, can get through it. All the lost revelation is like all the ones during. I'm sorry. This one is all the lost revelation. Oh yeah, I'm sorry. Thanks uh, for bringing that up, uh, Cindy. Yeah, all the lost. The last rapture is. No, no, no. We know that 
uh, we know that all of those that have died without God will one day stand before the great white throne. They'll be they'll actually be caught up and placed before the great white throne judgment. Revelation twenty verses eleven through fifteen. Those who are not found written in the book of life are cast into the lake of fire, and that's their eternal judgment. Yes, ma'am. Those that are born again and are not looking for the rapture, don't believe in the rapture, are they going up? Yes, they are. Yeah. You know what? Here, here's the thing. Um, let, let's. You know, it, it, it's um, and it all goes back to to the grace of God. You know, it works. We, we don't get what we deserve. You know, we get the 